This week I looked up the dictionary definition of a philosophy. There were two helpful entries. First, a philosophy is a theory or an attitude that acts as a guiding principle for our behaviour. Second, philosophy is the study of the fundamental questions of human existence. A philosophy is the attempted form at an answer. Philosophy then is about the deep questions of life. Who we are as human beings. What is our purpose on earth? And as we start to draw conclusion on those points, it begins to illustrate how we should behave to make the most of our lives. So far, so good. I then began to look a little bit deeper at the philosophies that people follow in our world today. First of all, I discovered some of the strands of philosophy that students study at university. Have a listen to some of these. Stoicism. The attempt to improve yourself by minimising negative emotional thoughts. Scepticism. The belief that you can never know anything to be really true. Hedonism. The idea that pleasure is the only valuable thing in life, so you should get as much of it as you can. Nihilism. This is really bleak. There is no purpose or value to life whatsoever. Wow. How miserable. But of course, most of us are not university students studying philosophy. So I began looking for what philosophies everyday men and women might follow in life. And I came across a website that proudly stated six key philosophies that will help shape the life of young entrepreneurs. They were, be mindful, look for opportunities to lead the world a better place, learn by doing, realise that there are many different paths to success, recognise that your time is limited, so think big, take action to improve your community. I wonder how you feel about some of them. They seem to make some sense. It's not the worst advice you've ever heard. And then finally, in my brief research this week, I looked online for the driving forces in people's lives, the thoughts and activities that inspire them and, and give them energy for a good cause. Of course, I soon discovered that the list was almost endless. Veganism climate concern, dieting, yoga, meditation, new age spirituality, politics, social justice, tolerance, equality. It soon became clear to me that our world is awash with different teachings and agendas, an almost countless number of philosophies for life. What is more, we live in a world where people like to collect different philosophies and add them all together. Even if on the face of it, they seem to compete with one another. Many of us gather different thoughts and ideas and religions and spiritual practices with the hope that by as ticking as many boxes as we can, we will have a fuller life. Every time we come to a new idea, we get excited and seize upon it, hoping that by following it, it will help to complete us. A little bit of Christianity here. A little bit of Buddhism there, a little bit of Karl Marx here, a little bit of Eastern meditation there, a little bit of yoga here, a few crystals dotted over there. And so we go on, hoping to find true satisfaction. 
The Apostle Paul would have quite a lot to say to our present context. And he began our reading today by giving us a warning against hollow and deceptive philosophies. But with so many of them around us today, that begs the question, how do we know which philosophies are hollow and deceptive? Well, the answer to that in Paul's mind is very simple. A deceptive philosophy is any theory on life that doesn't have Jesus at its centre. Without Christ, it's not clever, it's not sophisticated, it's hollow and it's human and it will hold you back. Adding different philosophies to your life that do not contain Jesus, it will not complete you, it will diminish you. They will not add to your life, they will take away. They will not fill your needs, but they will leave you increasingly empty. Paul was writing to the young church in Colossae in the first century. And many of them were struggling to know what to believe. Because false teachers had come into their town and were trying to change what they knew. They were being told that on top of their faith in Jesus, they needed to follow a whole list of extra disciplines and beliefs. They needed to observe special feast days and eat special food. They needed to worship angels and keep themselves clean. They needed to beat their bodies and treat the flesh harshly. In short, they were being tempted into adding a whole lot of extras on top of their faith in Jesus. And they were being told that they needed to do all of these things to fully set themselves free, to make themselves complete. And Paul's message to these young Christians was very blunt. Let's hear it again in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Do we hear? For this is just as relevant to us today as it was to the Colossians back then. No new philosophy on top of the gospel you have already heard will set you free. It will only imprison you deeper. Only Jesus Christ can offer you the fullness of life that we hunger for. Only Jesus can lead us from captivity into freedom. We are to hold on to him and nothing else. The question we're now to ask is why? Why is it the case that only Jesus offers us what we need? Well, in the rest of our passage, Paul goes on to answer that in three different ways. Let's have a look at what he says. The first thing that Paul speaks about is fullness. We do not need anything other than Jesus, because Jesus is fully God. And by his spirit, he fills our lives. Let's listen again to verses 9 and 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. 
He is the head over every power and authority. (coughs) Paul wants his readers to be really clear on this. Jesus is not simply a human being, though he is a human being. Neither is he simply a man remarkably filled of God, though in a way he is that as well. No, Jesus was and is the bodily form of God himself. God in all his fullness. Let's make sure we've got this absolutely right. Jesus isn't a demigod. He isn't half human, half God. He is fully God. He doesn't have a human body and a divine spirit. He is fully God. In the pagan world of Colossae, they would tell stories of heroic human beings that became divine shortly before their death. Their ruler Caesar thought that about himself. He called himself the son of God and got people to worship him as a deity. What Paul says here undercuts all of that. Jesus was no myth or fake or just mere human teacher. He was the real thing. Fully God on earth. You know, throughout human history, there have been prophets and priests of various kinds trying to lead people to God. Some of them have even set themselves up as mediators between God and man. But all of these figures have pointed away from themselves. Jesus did the opposite. He said, come to me. He said, I and the Father are one. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. So Paul says, if we have any questions about the meaning and purpose of life, if we want to find more about God, the creator, and what he is like, there is only one place we can look. We have to look at Jesus, the fullness of the deity in bodily form. Look anywhere else, and we're looking in the dark. And Paul goes on, not only is Jesus fully God, But if you believe in him and have set out to follow him, he is in your life, filling it by his Holy Spirit. The Holy God is now within you. And when that is the case, what more could you possibly gain from following other philosophies in life? What more can you possibly add to your life than Christ in you, the hope of glory? We cannot add a thing. If we try to add to it by following some other ritual or trend, we're simply taking away space that is rightfully Jesus. We are diminishing our life, not completing it. As human beings, we will only ever find fullness in Jesus. And Paul finishes his point in verse 10 by stating that Jesus is the head over every power and authority. He is sovereign over all creation. Anything other than him in your life will always be less than. A move towards emptiness, not satisfaction. So the first point of Paul's argument against the hollow philosophies of his day is that it's in Christ we find fullness. The second revolves around fellowship. In verses 11 and 12, Paul states how in Jesus we are fully united with God and his people. Clearly, one of the major elements of the false teaching going around Colossae in the first century was the need for circumcision. 
On top of believing in Jesus, the young Gentile Christians were being told that they had to be circumcised as well if they truly wanted to fit in with God's plans. Now, why might that have been? What was the perceived importance of circumcision? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision set the men of the community apart as God's people. It was a mark of fellowship. Men got circumcised as a rite of passage into the community. It signified identity and belonging. Quite simply, if you were circumcised, you were God's, part of his family. But even though Paul himself was a devout, law-abiding Jew, he believes that this act of circumcision has now been fulfilled in a new and deeper way. So much so, God's people are now identified through a whole different act of faith. What was that act? It was baptism. Now let's think about this for a moment. Circumcision involves the cutting off of a very small part of the male anatomy. The stripping away of a small piece of flesh. Whereas on coming to faith, the Colossian believers had been fully baptised. They hadn't just stripped a little bit away. They had put the whole previous way of life to death and started anew. They had died with Christ and begun again. In Paul's eyes, circumcision is now tiny in significance compared to baptism. It's much less than, not more than, what the gospel called for. Let's hear Paul explain this in his own words, verses 11 to 12. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. You see, when those Colossian believers came to faith in Jesus and got baptised, they moved into a whole new dimension in their lives. They were now found to be in Christ. Their baptism stated that when Jesus died, he died for them. And when he rose, he rose for them. Paul says they were raised with him through faith. All baptised believers are now in Christ. And that includes us today. When God looks down and sees us, he sees his son. When God looks at his son, he sees us. The son of God, the one in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells, is now our friend and our brother, as well as our Lord and our saviour. Let's make this really clear. Baptised believers have fellowship with God in the most intimate of ways. We have been welcomed into his people in the most public of ways. We have been set apart for God's purpose and equipped to do it by the Holy Spirit. How on earth can circumcision possibly add to that? It can't. End of. And when we think of all the trendy spiritualities and supposedly enlightened philosophies doing the rounds today, the truth is exactly the same. There are simply no practices out there in the world today that can draw you into closer fellowship with God than what you already have through Christ. 
There is no way you can draw into closer fellowship with other believers than them already being your brothers and sisters through baptism in Christ. How can you possibly get closer to God than being in God and God in you? You can't. So don't try. You will only ever end up with less than what you started with through faith. I hope all of this is making sense. We live in a world where we're often tempted to add extra things onto Jesus. It happened in Colossae and it still happens today. And Paul is explaining that this is an utterly futile thing to do. How can you add to Christ, fully God, living in you? How can you draw closer to God than the fellowship you already have with him through your baptism? We can't. Jesus is the one we need. There is one final thing that Paul wants to say. One final reason why Christ just cannot be added to. And this is all to do with forgiveness. In verses 13 to 15, Paul explains how Jesus fully takes our sins away. You know, we need to get away from the thought that sin is just a trifling matter. Something small and insignificant in our lives. So often we think to ourselves, well, of course God loves me. I'm basically a good person inside. But that's just us kidding ourselves. In our more honest moments, we recognise the deep regrets and the guilt and the shame that we carry around with us in our lives. Somerset Moham, a great English writer of the last century, captured something of this when he said, If I wrote down every thought I have ever thought and every deed I have ever done, men would call me a master of depravity. There is a truth in that. I have thoughts, sinful thoughts, that I would never share with anyone, not even my wife. But of course, God knows them all. So yes, as human beings, we are made in the image of God. There is so much beauty and value and potential in our lives, but it's also so much damage done by sin. And in Paul's mind, sin is so serious because there is both a penalty and a power to it. The penalty to sin is death. Elsewhere, Paul wrote, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Why is that the case? Well, because our God is perfectly just. He must act to protect others and his world. And therefore, there must be consequences to bad behaviour if he, as God, is to remain good. Every time we sin, we damage God's creation. Every time we sin, we fail to give God the honour that he is due and fall into debt. God is holy. There must be consequences. There must be a fit penalty. But there is also a power to sin as well. In John eight thirty four, Jesus said, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, there's an addictive quality to it. Sin is like a drug. One sin leads to another. Bad temper, envy, pride, selfishness. These things start to take over our lives. We become addicted to patterns of thought and behaviour that on our own we just cannot break. 
It's like a form of slavery, a power we live under. J.C. Ryle, the renowned Bishop of Liverpool, wrote about the nature of sin like this. Each and all sins have crowds of unhappy prisoners bound hand and foot in their chains. The wretched prisoners boast sometimes that they're eminently free. But there's no slavery like this. Sin is the hardest of all taskmasters. Misery and disappointment by the way, despair and hell in the end. These are the only wages that sin pays to its servants. Sin then is very serious and we all need freeing from its penalty and its power. And deep down every human being knows this. But sadly many of us look in the wrong place to find the atonement that we're so desperate for. In these verses Paul is very clear. Only Christ can fully take our sins away. Let's listen to him one more time. Verses 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Did we hear that? Did we really hear that? When we were dead in our sin, God made us alive. He has cancelled the debt by Christ paying all that we owe. He has taken the penalty that our sins deserve and instead proclaimed us innocent. He has broken the power that held us through the great power of his love. And all of this happened once and for all at the cross of Jesus. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, our sin was nailed there with him. When Jesus died, our sin died. It cannot come back. At the cross, Christ defeated sin and evil and death and devil and hell. In fact, he utterly humiliated these great enemies of the human race because he rose again just when they thought they had won. Paul really couldn't make it any clearer for us. There is no other way to forgiveness than through Christ. There is no other form of forgiveness that can be added on top of Christ. There is nothing more we need do. He was the perfect sacrifice. He paid the debt of all the world and he defeated evil once and for all. So do not be tempted to look for forgiveness anywhere other than in Jesus. Do not listen to anyone who say they can add forgiveness to your life. Do not follow any philosophy that offers to make you clean. Because it's hollow and deceptive and less than the best. It will imprison your life, not set you free. Do not be fooled. And with that, we can now quickly conclude. In this reading, we have discovered why we must not put any store in any teaching or philosophy 
that does not have Jesus at its centre. Why? Because it's a fad that is always going to give us less than what we need and what we already have in Christ. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God and fills our lives with his spirit. Jesus Christ brings us into full fellowship with God and his people. And Jesus Christ fully forgives all of our sins. In Christ we find all that we need for the fullest life possible. The Colossians were not to allow themselves to be turned away from him. And neither should we.